Hey everyone, this is Chad. Thanks for taking time to listen to my Easter sermon, Clear Eyes, Full Hearts. In this sermon, I try to make clear the good news of Jesus, specifically the importance of his resurrection to our lives. I believe that when someone comes to believe in the resurrection and thus gives their lives to Jesus, it changes everything. If God uses this sermon to change you, please let me know by emailing respond at creekside.me. It would be great to know that God used my words and I'd love to be able to pray for you. Also, if you think that God might use this sermon to impact someone else, please share it with them. And as always, if you regularly listen to our sermons on a podcast host like iTunes or Stitcher, please leave us a rating or review. This will help God's story be heard by more people. And finally, I start a new sermon series next week about all the differences the resurrection can make. So make sure to subscribe so that you know when that's posted. Or better yet, if you live in our area, come visit us and hear it live. You can find all the information you need at wilsonville.church. Life is a series of losses. I think that we all know that whether we want to pause and think about it or not. We all know that in this life, we will constantly be losing things. From the time we're little kids, we experience loss. You know, for some, it's just the, the loss of, of childhood. There's this song that my great-grandma used to love, and I don't know why, because I think it's the most depressing song in the world. Uh, it's a song that people play at Christmas, and I think that's super weird, too, because it, it just makes you want to cry. It's called Toyland. It's an old song. Maybe some of you know it. But it basically says, Toyland, Toyland, little boy, and girl land. And, and then the end of the course is, once you cross those borders, you can never have it back again. Merry Christmas, everybody. You know, I, that's a weird song. But, but as you grow up, you know, like, like there are stages where you just lose some of the imagination and some of the freedom and some of the innocence that you have as you move forward in life. For me, the first time I think that I can remember genuinely understanding that in this life we will lose and we will lose in a way that we can never get back is when my dog died. It was the first a uh, creature that I loved that died, the first creature that I was close to that died. I was 17 years old, and I had just finished a baseball game, and my family came and said, hey, we thought he was going to be able to come home from the vet, but he needed to be put down. It was the right thing to do, and I, I remember sitting by a dugout, uh, just on the side of the dugout where my friends and teammates couldn't see me, and just bawling my eyes out. We know that there's loss, and within that loss, let's be honest, it seems that it's hopeless to ever regain those things. I will never in this life be able to pet checkers or to be able to chase him when he got out in the front yard and try to run him down and get him back into the house. That will never come back to me. And these losses can leave us feeling hopeless, but they don't have to. Yesterday, uh, couple in our church who has just had a baby, Kevin and Ashley are their names, they're not here this morning, uh, they called me crying because their brand new baby was having trouble breathing, and the first nurse they talked to said, we're going to have to transport him to Randall's Children's Hospital, it's probably a problem with his heart. And I'll just tell you ahead of time that the baby is doing fine right now. But as I'm driving to the hospital, I'm thinking, and I sometimes do, about the worst. Thinking, what 
am I going to say to them if that baby is dead? What am I going to say? And it reminded me that I had to, at one point in my life, make a decision about what I was going to say to people who had just lost their child. When I was 20 years old, uh, for the first time in my life, I didn't play baseball during the summer. And instead, I went on a two-month short-term mission trip to southeast Idaho. I really wanted to reach those five people for Jesus down there. Uh, And uh, it was a great experience for me because I was able to live with a, a pastor who did uh, did ministry in rural churches and, and just able to kind of shadow him and do everything that he did and be a part of his ministry. It was one of the great learning experiences of my life, but uh, it didn't start off as a great experience. I had been there for about a day, and, and Ken said, let's drive from Pocatello, where he lived, down like in the armpit of of southeast Idaho, uh, this little, I can't remember the city now, but this little teeny tiny city, Montpelier, if you're familiar with southeast Idaho, there it is. So we drive down there to meet this other family who who was doing rural mission work down there and, and really just ministering to people in small cities and things like that. And, and I met this family, their last name is Brummer, the Brummers. Met them, met two of their kids out of three of their kids and uh, great family I was going to that summer. Uh, I did, in fact, that summer lead a little youth group that it was pretty much though their two of their kids and then two other kids and uh, and ran a youth ministry for those two months down there. And they said, hey, our other son, Philip, is off doing something. He graduates from high school this year. Two days later, Ken got a call from Dave, the dad in the family. And Philip, their oldest son, who was about to leave for Bible college, died in a car accident. He calls Ken, and we drive to Montpelier, and we go to the little hospital there. And I went from having met these people once to sitting in the hospital room with them, where their dead son laid in front of me. And I remember pulling their youngest son aside, Andrew, And trying to offer words of encouragement. The next thing I knew, we were sitting in their house planning a funeral. I was out in a field playing with their other two kids. Trying to offer some semblance of hope. And then, and I don't know how this happened. And this doesn't even seem like real life. It seems like a dream. As they're sitting planning the funeral, they say, well, hey you. That's about the relationship we had. Guy that seems kind of nice that showed up here and we met a few days ago. You're the only one that's not too connected to this. So will you drive our van behind the hearse when we go from the memorial service to the gravesite? Yes. You know, I mean, now here's what's so great about Dave and Andrea. Is while they were crushed, and they were crushed, let's not even dance around that. They were absolutely crushed. In the midst of it, you could see this incredible hope that went beyond loss. They went to the hospital to visit the boy who was driving the car that killed their son to make sure that he was not too upset. They, during the preparations for the funeral, made sure that it was, it was done in a way that was going to preach the gospel story, the good news of Jesus that they believed that was giving them hope to the people who would show up there. And and while I drove with them in the van behind their son's hearse, they wanted to make sure that I wasn't too uncomfortable. 
I didn't have really any words to offer them, but I can tell you looking back that despite loss, they had incredible, incredible, incredible hope. And I believe it was because they understood what Easter is all about. They understood the resurrection. In the show that I watched when my daughter, who's over there 18 months, when she was born, I watched pretty much all of Netflix. Uh, Just in the first couple of weeks, I wasn't working, and you can't do much with a newborn. And so I got to, like, the bottom of Netflix. It was, like, the end. Uh, And uh, one of the shows that I watched during that time was a show called Friday Night Lights. And uh, Friday Night Lights is famous for a couple of kind of catchphrases, one of which is Texas for life. That was my best southern accent. Uh, And the other one is this, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And what would happen in that show, it's about a football team, and and the coach would yell out, clear eyes, full hearts. And then the the team, before they would go out into the game, would yell out, can't lose. And, And here's what I believe about the resurrection, and I found this to be true in my life. If we have clear eyes and full hearts about this day and all that it stands for, if we truly understand it and we let it fill our hearts then no matter what goes away, we won't lose. We will not lose the hope that God has given us. And today, I want to look at a story of two men that I am telling you had suffered an extremely difficult loss. And in their story, their encounter with Jesus, we see that when their eyes became clear and their hearts were filled up, they went from the most extreme hopelessness to the greatest joy and the story is in Luke 24 and it starts in verse 13 it says now that same day and it needs some setup for us and so let me tell you what happened on that day Jesus had died we'll talk about that in a second and then two women had gone to see Jesus tomb they had gone to take spices there something that was traditional for Jewish people and they showed up on the scene And the grave was open, and there was no body there. And all of a sudden, an angel talked to them and said, Hey, he's not here. He's risen. And the women go back to Jesus' closest friends and followers and say, Hey, we met an angel, and he said Jesus rose again. And the men are like, Nah, probably not. But one of them, a guy named Peter, he runs there to see what is happening, and it tells us that he left wondering to himself. What had happened. So here's the first idea that maybe, just maybe, Jesus is no longer dead. And then Luke takes a turn from all the other people that wrote the story of Jesus for us. And he tells us this story that we don't talk about a lot. But I think it's a very important, very valuable story. Because it shows us how the resurrection can take us away from hopelessness and point us towards hope. In verses 13 through 18, it says, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? 
Now, a couple of things that are really important about this. The first thing is you notice that language there that their face was downcast. That is a word that we don't use very often. I don't think we use that very often. We say like sad. But the, the Greek word that translates into downcast, it means like gloomy or solemn or embittered or depressed or melancholy. These people were walking to Emmaus and they were sad because their hope had been taken away. But the, the funny part of this section of verses is what they say to Jesus Hey, are you the only guy that doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem about this Jesus character? That's what they're saying. But they don't recognize Jesus, and so there's some irony. It's almost as if somebody walked up to President Trump and said, Hey, do you know what's been going on with the election? It's been a little bit crazy. That would be funny-ish, right? You don't seem to get it. But it seems like it would be a, a little bit funny, right? Because here's Jesus who's died and we know rose again and he's walking alongside them and they're like, this guy's weird. He doesn't know all about this Jesus character and what's been going on there. And so Jesus goes right with it because he wants to teach them a lesson. And the next thing we read is what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, notice. Notice what they say about Jesus. And I don't know what you think about Jesus. I don't know what you've come in here today believing about Jesus, but I think it's really important to pay attention to what the first century people said about Jesus. The people that hung out with Jesus, the people that watched Jesus minister, the people that were around Jesus all the time, the people that saw Jesus do miracles, the people that heard Jesus preach. I think it's really important to see what they had to say about Jesus. I mean, if you were going to meet somebody for the first time, picture a blind date, maybe. I went on a blind date once. Your, your question would not be like, just what do I think about this person that I've never met or never seen? You, you would want to talk to a friend and go, tell me about fill in the blank. What are they like? And here, these first century Jewish men who hung out with Jesus, who knew about Jesus, describe him in a way that I think we should pay attention to. They say about Jesus that he was powerful in word, that he taught powerfully, that Jesus was powerful indeed, that he did miracles, that he was someone who at least demonstrated that he had been in the presence of God or could speak the words of God or do the works of God. This Jesus character was not somebody that could not be paid attention to it was not somebody that the normal average person could ignore and they didn't even know about the resurrection yet so whatever you've come in here first just thinking about Jesus and, and maybe you think you know seemed like a nice guy kind of started a revolution a little bit of a hippie he, he was a guy that people wrote about in the bible something like that I don't know whatever you think you need to know at least that the people who were around him every day they saw something so abnormal and so good and so awesome in him that they referred to him as a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But that's not all they say. They say he was killed. They say the chief priests, the leaders, those in charge, 
They put him to death. He's dead. This part we know is true. This part is indisputable. Jesus died. Every person that knew Jesus, every person that was in Jerusalem during this time had no question about whether or not Jesus had died. What they did not know is that Jesus had died for their sins. In 1 Peter 2.24, it tells us why Jesus died. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What you need to understand is that Jesus' death was not accidental. It wasn't unintentional. Uh, some scholars, some people who claim to be scholars anyway, would say, well, Jesus just made the wrong people mad. But what the Bible tells us what men and women who hung out with Jesus tell us, what Paul who encountered the resurrected Savior tells us, is that Jesus died in order that you might have forgiveness for sins. And I would be a, a bad person if you showed up here on Easter and I didn't tell you that I believe that to be true. What I think, what I believe, what God has told us in his word is that all of us, have done things that are bad. And you're like, oh, I already knew that part, right? I mean, you, could, you don't have to have the Bible. You don't need to read the Bible. You know that this morning on the way here, you probably did something that you would classify as jerky, whether it be to your husband or wife or to your kid or to, uh, you know, the other person in the other car who got in your way. I mean, you know you do things that you go, oops, shouldn't have done that. Wish I wouldn't have done that. In fact, all of us, I would guess, have regrets that go beyond just what happened this morning on the way to this church. We have regrets that we cannot get over. We have things in our lives that, that we wish, we just wish we could be forgiven for. That not only could we be forgiven for, but that we could feel forgiveness for. Because we still hold it against ourselves even long after people have stopped holding it against us. And the Bible says that, that Jesus came to earth Christmas. He lived a sinless life. And at the end of that life, he died the most horrific death that has ever been died. Not because of the physical torture that he endured, which he did. Not because he was pierced through his hands and his feet and because people mocked him and, and people took bets over who would get his clothes as he suffered on their behalf. But because when he died on the cross, all of the sins of the world were laid upon that's what the Bible declares. The Bible declares that when Jesus died, he died for that thing that you have never forgiven yourself for. That when he breathed his last breath, he did it in order that you might have forgiveness for that thing that you still, still feel bad about. But I want you to notice this. While that should bring us great hope, while that's awesome in and of itself, for these disciples that we encounter in this story, it was not good enough for them to continue in hope. I want you to notice this. It says at the end of this, we had hoped. They had had hope and that hope had been taken from them. It was gone. They believed that Jesus, when he entered into Jerusalem was going to set up a military reign, that he was going to sit on a throne, that he was going to overthrow the Roman government who was oppressing the Jewish people, and he was going to make everything right for them. They had hoped. 
but they no longer hoped. When Jesus died, their hopes had been buried in a tomb. And as they walked this road to a city called Emmaus, they no longer had hope. In fact, their, face, their faces were downcast. If Jesus only died, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we don't have hope at all. But in Luke 21, 21 through 24, you can see that the hope is rising. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. Now I want you to know, this is, this is so important. You might think that we celebrate Easter because of some tradition. You might think that we celebrate Easter because your, your family has done it, because our families have done it, because there's this thing called church and it's a happy day and, and we like to eat or whatever it might be. You might think that Easter is just this thing that Americans do like the 4th of July. But for those of us who are Christians, I need you to understand that we don't celebrate Easter because it's some tradition, we celebrate Easter because there were eyewitness testimonies to the fact that Jesus got out of the grave. This is not some mythological, transcendental idea that Jesus arose. It is something that was attested to by eyewitnesses and there is so much proof for that. I don't want to go into it today. I'd love to have a conversation with you if you're like, I just don't see enough evidence. I don't know why you'd ever believe a guy got out of the grave, rose again from the dead. I'd love to talk to you about that. But let me just point to one thing. As Luke, who is known by Christians and non-Christians alike, people who love Jesus and people who hate Jesus alike, he is known as an incredible historian, yet he does something that was so countercultural for a historian at the time. He makes the witnesses, the first witnesses to this resurrection, women. Now we, we'd be fine with that, but for the Jewish person in the first century, for the Roman person in the first century, all the people wrapped up in this story in the first century, this would have been the dumbest thing that Luke ever could have done. Now this would just bother us like crazy today, but, but I want you just to try to get in their heads. Women could not testify in a court of law in Jewish society or Roman society at the time of Jesus. In fact, if a woman testified on your behalf, let's say you were facing a murder trial and the, uh, the lawyer, your defendant, uh, your, uh, your defense attorney, he said, we're going to call this woman. It would actually hurt your case in the eyes of government because women did not have any Testimony power. In fact, their testimony would do you a disservice in a court of law. The only reason, the only reason that Luke, a Jewish man, would have said, hey, uh, so Jesus got out of the grave and the first people that knew about it were women is because that's what Luke knew to be true. That's what Luke found out when he interviewed people who were wrapped up in this story. That's what Luke knew when he interviewed people that had seen Jesus after Jesus had died and come out of the grave. I do not believe in the story of the resurrection because my parents did or my grandparents did or my great-grandparents did. I believe in the story of the resurrection 
because people who lived at the time of Jesus saw him die, were utterly and completely hopeless, and then saw him get out of the grave. And then Jesus launches into this sermon. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all the, prophet, all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Here's what's so cool about those eyewitness testimonies. Is all of the prophets, that means all of the Old Testament, pointed to the fact that Jesus would eventually come, that Jesus would eventually die, and that Jesus would get out of the grave. For hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus lived, there were people writing as God's Spirit led them to write, there were people writing and saying, hey, somebody is coming, he's going to die for your sins, but he will not stay dead, he will get out of the grave. And so Jesus launches into the sermon to say, hey, look, you are Jewish people who should know, because you believe the Old Testament, you should know what was said about me. Things like Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, that says, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus gives this sermon. What a sermon it would have been. It's a seven mile walk. Jesus might have talked for like three hours to these people. And gone through right from the beginning of the Old Testament. And said hey look. This is not new information. What these women are claiming is not done out of nowhere. This was not a surprise. You were told that this would happen. And again, if there's a reason that I believe Jesus got out of the grave, the eyewitness testimonies are first, but the prophecies are second. Jesus did so many things that were written thousands of years before he lived that it's statistically impossible for him to have done it. It's not possible. Unless he actually was the one who was promised. And if he was the one who was promised for thousands of years, then, then we should pay very close attention to his story. I think we would all agree on that. If somebody showed up on the scene right now and there was a book, and that book had said this will happen in their life, and 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 it just did like seven different things, you'd be amazed if that all happened. But if it did 500, 600 different things and said this will exactly happen in this way, you would have to pay attention to that child. You would have to go, who is this man? So Jesus gives this sermon and then it says as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if we were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Notice this. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? While well, he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Now here's what happens in this moment. Jesus breaks this bread, and you saw it there. It says that their eyes were open, their eyes were clear, and they recognized that in the presence of this resurrected Savior, their hearts had burned, their hearts were full. 
And then, immediately, they run the seven miles back to Jerusalem, full of hope, full of joy, full of excitement, full of love, full of passion, full. Here's what happened for them. When their eyes were clear and their hearts were full, they realized that they could not lose. They realized that what they had hoped for was still the hope of their lives. I envision two roads. A road to Emmaus, where these men were headed. A road that was filled with nothing but loss and nothing but hopelessness when those losses kept coming. I envision a road where these men lived their lives in a regular way, suffering pain and death and sorrow, just like all of us will, but without any hope. And then I envision a road on the way back to Jerusalem where they would still face pain, death, sorrow, hurt, pain, and struggle, but they would do it with the utmost hope and joy. This morning, what I want you to understand is that all is lost on the road to Emmaus. And apart from having clear eyes and full hearts, we are all headed to Emmaus, the metaphorical destination of death, where we ultimately not only lose everything, we lose our very lives. Johnny Cash, in a song that he covered by Nine Inch Nails called Hurt, you might know it, he says in this song near the end of his life, you can have my empire, my, excuse me, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. Everyone I love goes away in the end. The most successful, one of the most successful musicians we know gets to the end of his life and he feels the need to sing this song and he sings it with such brilliant emotion and passion because he knows that everything that seemed good had been lost and now he's facing the end of his life. And all he had was the hope of Jesus. And so I envisioned this road to Emmaus. When money goes away and we go, I had hoped that that paycheck would get me over the top. I had hoped that if I could just get that next job, then it would be good and life would be better and I'd be able to buy that nicer house. I had hoped that when I could pay off my debt, I would feel satisfied and joyful and less stressed. I envision a road to Emmaus when we have romances end and we go, I had hoped that that person would complete me. I had hoped that they would make me feel better about myself, that they would be the ones that would truly give me the joy that I've longed for. I envision a road to Emmaus where we get fired and we think, I had hoped that that job was the one I would keep. I had hoped that that job would want, be the one that, that made me feel respected by my coworkers and the people that I managed in my family. I had hoped that that would be satisfying. I envision a road to Emmaus where we, where we lose friends through death. Or just through things that happen, conflict. And I envision that road and we go, I had hoped that we'd be lifelong friends and that, that we would bring each other companionship until the end. I had hoped that everything in this relationship would go well. I envision a road to Emmaus where we look at our children and we go, 
they've done something bad. They've done something wrong. I had hoped that they would be successful and that their lives would be good and without hurt, but now they have failed or they have been crushed by life. They have been taken down. They hurt. I had hoped that my kids would have everything. But I envision another road. A road where we no longer have to say, I had hoped. A road where I had hoped is replaced by I have hope. A road where when all the money goes away, we declare I have hope. And when that romance ends, we stand up and we say I have hope. And when we get fired from that job that we had worked so hard to get, we say I have hope. And when we lose a friend, we say I have hope. And when our children fail and falter, we say I have hope. And each of us, I think almost every day, stand at a crossroads. And we must make a decision whether we will be on the road to Emmaus or we, whether we will be on the road to Jerusalem. And at that crossroads stands one, one life. A resurrected life. The life of Jesus. Because only in Jesus can we have clear eyes and full hearts that allows for us to never lose no matter what losses might come. Our way. It is my hope, it is my prayer, it has been my prayer that all of you that stand before me today will make a decision, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the first time, to decide that you will open your eyes to the resurrected Savior. That not only will you understand that he was prophesied for thousands of years, not only will you understand that the eyewitness testimonies are incredible. But even more, you will be like these disciples. They were nobodies. They have no other part in the story of Jesus. There's nothing else written about these people. We don't even know who one of the guys' names, what one of the guys' names is. But yet Jesus walked out onto the road of Emmaus, the road that too many people are on, and he said, "I want you to turn around." And be on the road to Jerusalem. My hope is that you will believe the prophecies and the eyewitness testimonies. But even more, my hope is that Jesus will call you by name. And he will open his eyes to you. And your hearts will be full. They will burn inside of you. And you will know that no matter what goes away. You will never lose. Because of what Jesus brings to us. And I want to tell you this morning that he brings so much. It's already been advertised, but there's a booklet, uh, one per family, a booklet in front of you. We're going to do a sermon series these next few weeks that talk about the incredible change that the resurrection can make for your life if you give your life to Jesus. But this morning, I want to tell you that it has changed everything for me. From the time I was little, there has been hurt, there has been pain, there has been struggle. And as I look back on my life and all of the losses, all of it, I can say from the time that I gave my life to Jesus until this very moment, no matter what I have lost, 
I've been able to say, I have hope, not I had hoped. And I want that for each of you so much. Because the reality is, the resurrection changes. I had hope to I have hope for everyone who chooses to believe it and accept Jesus as your Savior. And so let me be so clear with you this morning. The story that I believe that has changed I had hope to I have hope is this. Jesus came here from heaven. He is God in human form. He died a brutal death on a cross. He was buried, and with him, all of our hope was buried. But on the third day, he rose again. And if you believe that, if your eyes are opened and your hearts are filled with the majesty of his resurrection, and you say, Jesus, I believe it. I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for me, and I believe that you got out of the grave then Jesus will fill you in such a way that you will never again say, I had hoped. You will always say, no matter what losses come at you, you will always say, I have hope. And that's what I want for you today and forever, evermore. To give your life to Jesus because he died and rose again so that I had hoped could become I have hope. So what I'm going to do so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes in just a minute. And whether it be for the first time or the millionth time, if you're a person that forever or just lately has been on a road to Emmaus, maybe because you've forgotten about the power and the majesty of the resurrection, maybe because, because your eyes have been clouded, by all that goes on in our country, or maybe because your hearts have been emptied by the hurts and struggles that you face. Or maybe because you've never thought about Jesus before, no matter who you are or where you're at, if you've been on the road to Emmaus feeling hopeless, feeling like every loss just takes you a step closer to the ultimate loss, I'm going to ask you to stick up your hand. And I'm going to ask you to say, today I commit, today I commit, even if it's the hundredth time, today I commit, even if it's the first time, today I commit because I believe and I can hear Jesus calling my name somewhere inside of me. And maybe you've been ignoring it for a while. Maybe you've, you've felt like, I should think about this Jesus thing. And maybe you showed up this morning because you're like, I just, this Jesus thing is tugging at me. And maybe there's something to it. And maybe today, maybe today could be the day where you turn around and say, no longer will I be on the road to Emmaus. But I will turn around and head to Jerusalem. I will go on to a road that no matter what I lose, I can say I have hope. And so I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, as, and then I'm going to pray for you if that's you. And so will you bow your heads? And if Jesus is calling you like he called those men 2,000 years ago, if Jesus has come into your life, and maybe you have not recognized him, but you can recognize him right now, would you please put your hand up? I'm going to give you one more second. Keep your hands up if you have them up. You don't have to be embarrassed. If anybody else, I just don't want anybody to leave here where Jesus is calling you and, and you just reject him because these men could have kept going to Emmaus. They could have kept going. They could have just lived their regular lives with no hope. If it's you, please put your hand up. You can put them down. Let me pray for you. Jesus.
Oh, Jesus. Lord, sometimes my love for you is selfish. But even in that selfishness, it seems so awesome. Because, Lord, I love you because at every juncture, every juncture, and you know the points in my life I'm thinking about, Lord, fear, hurt, brokenness, death, at all of those points, God, even though those things have been so hard for me, you've allowed me to say I have hope. And I thank you for these hands that have gone up, Lord. And I pray that from this point forward, God, no matter what they face, no matter what life throws at them, no matter how hurt they are, no matter how mean people are to them, no matter how bad things get, Jesus, I pray that they would declare I have hope because Jesus called my name because my eyes were cleared and my heart became full. And I will never lose. Jesus, let this commitment be sincere and real and eternal. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.